At the beginning of each Sunday service, I say that part of what we do here at UUCF is to draw wisdom from all the world's religions balanced with the insights of modern science. You can see a visual display of this goal in the atrium behind you if you look up. The seven symbols hanging from those multicolored streamers represent both some of the major world religions, so Buddhism, paganism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, as well as more modern scientific perspectives, atheism and humanism. In the center is a flaming chalice, the symbol of our Unitarian Universalist living tradition. Its placement there at the center of all those symbols of the circle represents our openness to drawing wisdom from all of those traditions, both sacred and secular. Our flaming chalice, you know, has our the double circles, one, one circle representing Unitarianism, the other circle representing Universalism, and that flame at the center represents that we look not just to the past, but also to the present. What is burning? What is alive today? You'll also see, especially at the top of your order of service, in that logo, that traditional, it's a sort of a cr- intentionally cruciform um, pat, that, but shifted slightly to the left, so that kind of acknowledging our liberal Christian heritage, but that Christianity has shifted over to become one among many. There's a lot going on in that flaming chalice symbol. So this morning, I'd like to reflect on some of that dynamic of drawing wisdom from all the world's religions, uh, balanced with all that we know here in the early 21st century. In what sense is Unitarian Universalism a religious movement? And what is religion anyway? Is Buddhism a religion uh, or is it a philosophy and who gets to decide? As a point of comparison of what constitutes a religion, let's begin by considering a movement that is even more progressive and humanist than Unitarian Universalism. That is possible. It's called ethical humanism. Uh, the ethical culture movement. And just as uh, UUCF and other UU congregations are part of this larger network called the Unitarian Universalist Association, ethical societies are a member of a larger network called the American Ethical Union. Uh, so is ethical humanism a religious movement? Interestingly, it is. So on one hand, the American Ethical Union describes itself as a non-theistic organization that is not concerned with either the existence or the non-existence of a deity. On the other hand, they are also clear that we are recognized as a religious movement because for us, the ethical quest has the depth of religious commitment. And because we recognize the value of a community of support and celebration and action. Similarly, one of the eight commitments of ethical culture, which is comparable to our UU7 principles, is that life itself inspires a religious response. What they mean by that is that although awareness of impending death intensifies the human quest, the mystery of life itself and the need to belong are the primary factors um, motivating a human religious response. Indeed, in the late 1950s, there were multiple victories in federal courts in the U.S. ruling that ethical societies, even though they were atheistic, functioned in so many ways like religious congregations that they could not be denied the tax-exempt status that it was already extended to churches and synagogues and other religious communities. So it turns out that even according to the U.S. legal system, this word religious is fairly elastic. 
to say more about what is meant by these words like religion and religious, let me share just a little bit about how my own interest in religion has evolved over the years. When I was in high school, I thought I wanted to be a physician when I grew up. Anyone else think they wanted to be a doctor and it didn't turn out that way? All right. Uh, my mother was a nurse, so I was around the hospital where she worked a lot, I mean, fairly often as a child. And I was serious enough about entering the medical field that as a high school senior, I enrolled in a course called Health Careers, uh, which involved both classroom lectures for about half the week, so tests on basic anatomy and physiology and medical terminology. But the other half of the week, we were in this rotating internship program in which we spent nine months rotating through nine different areas of the hospital for a month each. So as an 18-year-old, I was able to spend many hours shadowing emergency room nurses, watching many different surgeries in the room, uh, being in the room for live births, being in the pharmacy, physical therapy, all sorts of different areas. It was a remarkable program, and I loved it, and I thought that was what I wanted to do with my life. But as I was preparing for the preview days at a number of my top choices for college and reading about these many presentations that would be offered, but you couldn't go to all of them, so you had to discern which ones you uh, cared about the most, I was intrigued not only by these um, presentations about pre-med, but I was also found myself drawn to these presentations by the religion departments and by the philosophy departments. Uh, consider this one description. Religion majors learn how to clearly describe, critically analyze, and empathetically understand the religious traditions that inform the most deeply held perspectives of people past and present. With that foundation, our students are empowered to ask informed, incisive, and provocative questions about the social, moral, and um, political and personal implications of those viewpoints, as well as their own religious perspectives. If that sounds like a a fun way to spend four years, then being a religion major might be right for you. Call your doctor. Uh, but for me, uh, I just, I love this prospect of immersing myself in the big questions, of investigating how the major thinkers through the ages have pondered various possible responses and considering how religious rituals and religious ideas and these experiences with the holy, with the sacred, with the divine, how those have impacted and shaped individuals and cultures and groups throughout history and today. And in the end, I became a double major in religion and philosophy. Now, here's a twist. Initially, I took those terms like religion and religious studies fairly at face value. I assumed that they were pretty neutral terms. Uh, But as I began to learn more, I discovered how contested and complicated they actually are. It turns out that those umbrella terms like the world's religions, those all emerged out of 19th century um, European colonialism. And that neither Japan nor India have any sort of term in their native language that corresponds to what Europeans typically mean by religion. So I begin to learn about this divide in many academic disciplines between, of what is sometimes called lumpers and splitters. Lumpers tend to emphasize commonalities. They want to say, oh, those diverse groups, the ethical humanists and the Christians and the Buddhists, and the, you know, they all have similarities. Let's group them all together and call them religion. 
Now, splitters, as you can likely guess, want to say, well, actually, one of these is not like the others, and this is kind of different. Uh, so here's an example of what a splitter might point out, that long before the arrival of European um, colonists, there were diverse groups around the Indus River in India, and they did have a shared worldview of duties and obligations that affect all aspects of this almost endless cycle of births and rebirths. But it was actually 19th century British um, colonialists who lumped all those diverse uh, religions together and diverse people together and said, oh, they must be Hinduism. You know, we know about Christianity, we know about Buddhism, we know about Judaism, so this must be Hinduism. But that wasn't their self-understanding of themselves. They were just people who had sort of shared and overlapping worldviews in a general geographic area. And the closer you look, the more differences you can begin to see between those duties and obligations in Sanskrit, the word is Santana Dharma, uh, and that more generic European word religion. Similarly, many English translations of the Christian scriptures include the word religion, but the closer you look, the more anachronistic that seems, since the Christian New Testament was written in a version of the Greek language that predates our Latin precursors to that word religion. Those Greek words like Eusebia and Threskia, sometimes translated religion, are actually closer to that Sanskrit dharma, the Chinese li, the Latin pietas. All words that have something to do with the quality one is thought to possess as a result of properly fulfilling a set of social obligations and expectations and ritual procedures. Those distinctions are lost in translation today for those who think that, oh, religion is just about an inner religious experience, or religion is about believing 20 impossible things before breakfast, right, about things that allegedly happened centuries ago. Now, if that last minute or so, that felt, if that felt like plunging too far into religion, religion nerd territory, stay with me. I wanted to risk just a little bit of nuance because although there's a lot of truth in what I say each week about, you know, we want to draw wisdom from all the world's religions, balanced with the insights of modern science, the closer you look into what does that actually mean, you know, what are the differences and commonalities between these things we call the world's religions, the more the details actually start to matter. There's a reason that scientists don't limit themselves to talking about water, but often talk precisely about H2O. The term water can have a lot of foreign substances mixed in, but that chemical formula H2O clarifies very distinctly that what's being referred to is precisely a molecule containing exactly one oxygen atom and two hydrogen atoms joined by covalent bonds. Or whereas I might look through a telescope and say, oh, that's an amazing hole on the moon, a scientist might say, well, technically that's a crater. Uh, or consider this wooden structure I'm standing behind. Is this a lectern or is it a pulpit? Am I giving a lecture or am I giving a sermon? The different terms carry this world of assumptions and connotations behind them. And whether we call something water or H2O, a hole or a crater, a lecture or a sermon, a religion or a Santana Dharma, uh, that all shapes uh, both its function as, as well as how we relate to it individually and collectively. 
So on one hand, yes, Unitarian Universalism is a religious movement that's interested in drawing wisdom from all the world's religions, balanced with the insights of modern science. On the other hand, things can start to look pretty different if you stick around here for a while and perhaps take a risk of exploring some of those religious paths or paths uh, in more depths. Suddenly, what used to be secondhand religion, you know, what people told you about religion or what you read about religion starts to move into what is sometimes called first-hand religion, what you've experienced existentially for yourself. And that difference can be all the difference in the world. You may begin to see some differences and distinctions and revelations that were invisible to you before. As Morpheus tells Neo in The Matrix, you take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in bed, you believe what you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and we see how deep the rabbit hole goes. The choice is yours. For now, I want to invite you just to hear a little bit more about the insights that can be gained by looking at what is this um, word religion or religions? What can we learn about it from the kind of 30,000-foot perspective? So if you look up the word religion in the HarperCollins Dictionary of Religion, you'll see a note that says, defining religion is often held to be difficult. Thank you. Thank you, HarperCollins. That's very helpful. Uh, in introductions to the study of religion, you'll routinely see them listing a ton of definitions of religion to sort of evidence that there isn't consensus around what religion is. And to be fair, this dilemma is not unique to religion from a historical, from a cross-cultural perspective. You know, there, it is not possible to give a simple definition that is uncontested to what is music or what is art, who am I, right? Uh, to give you a sample of the many definitions of religion, a more traditional answer would be culturally patterned interactions with culturally postulated superhuman beings. A more generic definition is an experience of the holy, meaning an experience with something that is set apart from the ordinary and the mundane. Another definition that focuses on experience is the mysterium tremendum et fascinans, which is a fancy way of saying that mystery which is both fascinating yet somehow that yet also terrifying. That is compelling yet repelling. The metaphor often used is that of fire. That religion is kind of like playing with fire. That it uh, can warm you. It can. It's fascinating. It can also burn you. It also can burn other people, right? That it's this kind of fascinating yet dangerous thing. Uh, one of my favorite definitions is that religion challenges us to get in touch with our ultimate concern, you know, our deepest values, our highest values, to live into those individually and collectively, our ultimate concern. From a more skeptical perspective, religion has been defined as an illness um, by Freud, as a narcotic by Marx, as a weakness by Nietzsche, as a projection by Feuerbach. Feuerbach was a 19th century theorist. For him, he's sort of looking back of what do we know as moderns. He would say that, you know, if we used to say that God is love, so we would project that out, the inside of ourselves, project that out and say, you know, the only way we can say that why we should love each other and not kill each other is because there's a, a being in the sky who's going to punish us if we don't and gives us this example. Feuerbach would say, well, now we're modern and now we can realize this is all a psychological projection, so we just inverse that, right? We don't need to be loving because God is love. We now realize that that was projecting our unconscious, and we just need to say, reverse it, and say love, love should be our God. And so just own that and just um, 
pull that back into yourself and, and then live it out. So looking deeper into the word religion itself, the most popular etymology of religion is that it devi- uh, derives from the Latin root religare. That's related to our word ligament. So that re- religion is that thing that binds us together. Um, and I appreciate the ways that that definition shows the way that religious institutions, religious and spiritual practices can bind us together internally and communally, especially times when we're feeling broken and alienated. The case has also been made that the proper etymology of the word religion is instead the Latin word root uh, relegare, which means to be careful, to be mindful. So that's the sense of, you know, I read the morning newspaper religiously. It's religious in that sense. And there's a strong argument that that's actually maybe more accurate because the preponderance of religion in the ancient world uh, often tended to be about this careful performance of ritual obligation, whereas the modern Western sense of the world can often be that religion is about this inner sentiment or it's about assenting to certain intellectual ideas as opposed to rituals that I engage in. And the deeper you look into the word religion or really into any word that's important and has been around for a while, the more complexity you will find and the more drastic changes you will see of how that word is shifted over time in different times, in different places, in different contexts. So for better or worse, there isn't a final definitive answer to what is religion or what is religious, what is music, what is art. But regarding which of those definitions we might choose to employ in any given place or time, there is an underlying important question that I've learned to ask, and that is, who benefits? You know, are ethical societies a religion for tax purposes? Is smoking peyote, you know, constitutionally protected under the First Amendment as the free exercise of religion? What about polygamy? Can it be defended as constitutionally protected on the same grounds? These are hard questions. There are many more of them. They're hard questions when taken in isolation. But I encourage you to look underneath the surface of those questions and ask the even deeper questions that if we define and categorize religion one way, who benefits? If we define and um, categorize it differently, what about then? And do you see people being inconsistent in how they define and categorize religion based on who benefits? Which way brings people together? Which drives them farther apart? Which way empowers historically oppressed groups? And which way solidifies and strengthens injustice in the current status quo? Indeed, when European Christians first coined that term religion, they didn't generously and generically apply it to all what we might call religion today. To them, only they were religious because, of course, everyone else was superstitious, a heathen, and a sinner. Who benefits? Who decides? Here at UUCF, we seek to be a big tent that makes space for many different religious paths to cross, to collaborate, to coexist. And there are many ways that this and other religious communities can support us and challenge us to rise to greater challenges and heights than we often would on our own. In times such as these that are troubling and disturbing, religious communities remind us that we don't have to do this alone. In the theologically conservative congregation of my childhood, I was taught to work out my salvation with fear and with trembling. But I found a different way forward. 
Instead of working out my salvation with fear and trembling, I seek to work out our salvation right here and now in this world. And I seek to do it not with fear and trembling, but with hope and with trust. And I'm grateful to be on that religious journey with all of you. All right, we've got a little time. I'm going to tell you two more things. Uh, the first is that uh, I'm going to say a little bit about the study of religion, the power of reflexivity, and I'll say what I mean by that. And the second is that the map is not the territory. Uh, first, on, the, the, on reflexivity, uh, any of you who have studied other languages, like German, for example, have this reflexive case, so that when you say things, like in German, you would say, I brush my hair myself, or uh, you wouldn't just say, I brush my hair, right? I um, brush my teeth myself, so that, that myself, that, that coming back on you is the reflexive case, and that's a really powerful piece that happens in religion, and it's that, that transition from some people that become religion majors and, and are unsuccessful, uh, have this sort of approach that they aren't willing to let go of, which is, oh, I love Sunday school as a child, so being a religion that means I can do it for credit, right? No, it's not like that at all. It's very different than Sunday school because it challenges you to take a step back and take this meta stance, take this um, witnessing stance of saying, what's going on here? And that, and that often manifests itself in at least three ways, which is trying to get behind something, to get in something, and then to get in front of something. So the, the behind something means to take a religious text or to take a religious ritual or take a religious performance and to say, I want to try to get behind that. What's really going on? What did this emerge out of? What is the historical context? There's a lot of power in that in starting to, to try to get behind something and see where did this really come from and how has it evolved over time? So that's one thing that reflexivity can do for you in the study of religion. The second thing it can do for you is, is getting in front of it, is kind of taking a step back and say, what's going on in this dynamic of how me individually or us collectively, how are we approaching religious texts? How are we approaching religious performances? What's, what's going on in that interaction between myself and this performance or myself and this text? So let me give you an example. There's a phrase in religious studies and in, in what's called reader response criticism, which pays attention to how some people take the exact same ritual and the exact same text and different individuals in different communities read it in radically different ways, right? So saying what's going on with that, that with that ritual or with that, that explains that. That's what reader response response criticism is about. And a, a famous phrase in that is that people don't mean with, I mean, texts don't mean, rituals don't mean, people mean with texts, meaning to, at least two things, right? That people create meaning with text. People say things like, what does the Bible say about that? Well, the Bible doesn't say anything. You have to read it. And different people read it in radically different ways. So people create meaning with text. They also mean with it, right? They are, they are mean. They are cruel with texts. But to me, part of what reader response criticism shows and exposes and challenges us to see is that when different communities read the same text and one is more loving as a result and one is more cruel as a result, I would say one of them is doing it wrong and one of them is doing it right. And so that's, and that's a part of what you can begin to see by studying what's going on in front of the text as well as behind the text. The final piece of reflexivity is that um, 
part of a danger, I think, of Unitarian Universalism that has the sort of stance to many religions as well as to becoming a religion, an academic, toward, um, toward religion, is that you can be always the anthropologist and never the native so that you can miss that middle piece. Instead of being behind the text or in front of the text or the ritual or the performance, you forget to just let go sometimes and just be in it. So I invite you to consider that too. You know, there's times to study, there are times to get in front of, and there are times to just say, I'm just going to be in this song. I'm just going to be in this ritual. I'm just going to, and then we'll think about it later, but just allow yourself to, to be in it. So I give you that reflexivity, a really, really powerful tool in religion. The second is that the map is not the territory. So when I say that the map is not the territory, as a famous saying in cultural studies and linguistics is that, um, really cultural studies and anthropology, but that say something like Google Maps. You can, you can click on the satellite link and get a pretty amazing image of something like the Grand Canyon, but even, I don't care how big your computer monitor is, that is not the same as standing on the lip of the Grand Canyon. And in the same way, you know, if you're, you know, I, I spent time, especially when I was first getting into being a religion major, you know, reading the artist's way or reading books about Buddhism, it turns out that's really different than sitting your butt on the mat for 45 minutes every morning, day after day after day, and, and actually doing Buddhist meditation. And that reading the Bible is really different than actually getting out there and doing works of mercy and feeding the hungry and you know, clothing the naked and giving, um, you know, welcoming the stranger, visiting the imprisoned. And that you know, reading about Hinduism is really different than you know, actually doing chants and actually you know, doing these things. So the map is not the territory. That's another thing that's important to keep in mind. And the, the transformation tends to really come, or the potential for transformation comes not from reading the map, but from getting getting out, the, using those maps. We can learn a lot from where people have gone before, but actually getting out there and doing those things. And for some of you, that may mean a more atheist, humanist path toward, but not just thinking the things, going out there and arguing with other people and debating and discussing what is truth and what, what is meaning and seeing things you hadn't seen before. For some of you, it may be Buddhist. For some of you, it may be pagan or Christian or Jewish or Hindu, but that the map is not the territory. And so as you seek whatever your path or paths are, as you seek to walk down them, I invite you to continue your journey with love. That's your signal that you're doing it right, that you have more love, more compassion, some of what Nancy was talking about. Continue your journey with love. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together engaging in this way of being religious community. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.